To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Well, as I said a moment ago, we are beginning uh, this journey of looking at these letters to the seven churches of Revelation. Am I on there, uh, Andrew? Yeah, okay. Uh, one of the things you'll notice about each of these churches as we go through this series is that they all receive a mixed report. There are things that they are doing well, things that are commendable, things that are praiseworthy, and there are things that they need dealing with. In some of the cases, the problems are quite minor. Uh, in other cases, they are extremely serious. But my point is that no church has reached full maturity. There isn't a church we find in Revelation that has nothing to do, like nothing, nothing to work on. Sometimes when we join a church, it has the new car smell, you know what I mean? It's like the pastor, you haven't heard his jokes before, he's got new stories and it's like, oh, it's so great, it's so interesting, easy to follow. Everyone's really welcoming and kind, that's so different from my old church. You know, you go in and it has that, has that new car smell, but you know what happens to new car smell? It wears off, one day you're like, Car smells like, you know, something else or whatever. One day you just stop noticing how new it is, and instead you begin to notice, oh, the, uh, the check engine light is on, or, or the brakes or the tires or something else needs to be replaced. And in the same way, once you've been part of a church for six months, a year, a, a little while, you begin to notice what it doesn't do well. Oh, people sin against other people through gossip and slander, or, or some in the church are enamored with very theologically suspect ideas. Or perhaps there's something very serious wrong, like a leader or an elder of some kind is, is sinning against a congregant. Or maybe there's just a kind of deadness, there's a sense that people are here and, and we're doing stuff, but we're just kind of going through the motions. Well, I think these letters, all seven of them, should convey or should cure us of the idea that we have arrived. We are, we are not going to arrive. We haven't and we won't and no one has. So therefore, we are to progress. We are to pursue spiritual health and vitality. But there will never come a day when we can sort of, you know, dust our hands off and sort of, you know, hang everything up and, and declare ourselves done. Now, maybe that feels discouraging, like, oh, man, <laughs> this is just, just never ending. But listen, the hardest sin to deal with is the one that's never acknowledged. If you, if you can't acknowledge it, it's almost impossible to deal with it. So when we acknowledge our shortcomings, our sins, being honest with them, facing them head on, that's part of the process. But often we need to be shown our sin because we can't see it. So this morning what we're gonna see is Jesus looks his church at Ephesus, he, lo he loves them, but he looks them in the eye and says, there's a lot to be celebrated. There's a lot you're doing right. 
but you have a glaring deficiency. And if you don't deal with the glaring deficiency, this whole thing might come crashing down. I think we'd be wise to listen to what Jesus has to say to the church at Ephesus. So here's, here's three points. If you want to follow along, this might help. First, we're going to talk about all the commendable things, all the things Jesus says, you're doing great, keep going. Then we'll talk about this glaring deficiency, the church on the edge. And third, we'll talk about the way back. Now, all the letters to the churches follow a similar pattern. Each begins with an address. It always says something like, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, or to the angel of the church at Smyrna, uh, which is odd, is it not? Why is Jesus writing to an angel? <laughs> why, why not just write to the church at Ephesus? Why, why this intermediary? Well, he's not exactly, back in chapter 1, we did it two weeks ago, but, but John told us that Jesus told him, write to the churches. Whatever you see, write it down and give it to the churches. But by addressing each letter to the angel of each church, he, he's, he's just trying to remind them there is a spiritual nature to your existence. Yes, you are real people and you have a real, you meet in a real house and there, there's real things going on, but there are also spiritual forces at work. And without reading too much into this address, it seems Jesus has assigned an angel to watch over them, to help them, maybe to guide them. Now, does that mean then that all churches, like do, do we get an angel or something like that? I'm not, I'm not sure. The Bible doesn't really ever say. But it, we do know that Jesus sends his, his angels, his helpers, to assist his people in some ways. But we're reminded very generally, the church has a distinctly spiritual existence. There is more than flesh and blood in Ephesus. There's more than flesh and blood here. Now, what do we know about the Ephesian church? Well, this church got a couple letters. The letter to the Ephesians, you know, maybe most obviously. But also, First and Second Timothy were written to Timothy, their pastor, as he was pastoring the church at Ephesus. It's also likely that a bunch of letters were written by Paul while he was at Ephesus to other places. So this is an important church. It's a well-established church. Uh, it had been pastored by Paul and by Timothy and by a few other well-regarded leaders. This isn't a sort of a lightweight congregation. Uh, they, they, have, they have some serious sort of cred behind them. Who are the words to Ephesus from? Well, John says there in verse 1, They are from him who holds seven stars in his right hand and who walks among seven golden lampstands. Now, we did some of that symbology a few weeks ago, but very quickly, these symbols of stars and lampstands just mean that Jesus, the one speaking these words to Ephesus, he is the one who commands the angels of the churches, that's the seven stars, and he's also the Lord of all the churches, the seven lampstands. So basically he's saying, the angels, the churches, they're all mine. (laughs) They don't belong to us, they belong to him. Okay, now look with me at the start of verse 2 and verse 3. First two words of both verses are the same. They are, I know. I know. This is kind of incredible. Jesus knows what is happening in his church. You you know, you, in, in your role, you may feel unseen, you may feel neglected, you may feel all on your own. We may feel maybe lonely as a church or whatever. But if no one sees, if no one knows what's happening, Jesus does. Jesus is in touch with what's happening in his churches. And that's at the same time comforting and uncomforting, uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable because like, oh, if he sees what's happening in the church, then, oh, he sees the ugly parts. He sees any envy and greed, selfishness. Sees when we lose our tempers with each other, saying words that we regret. But it's also comforting because like if we feel lonely, if we feel neglected in our work, well, he sees that as well. So what does Jesus have to say to his church in Ephesus that he sees and that he knows? What's commendable about them? 
Well, I count 10 things. 10 separate things are commendable about this church. You know, big round of applause for Ephesians. Like 10 different things you guys are doing well. You know, they're just kicking butt in lots of different areas. I want to look at 10. We'll, we'll, go, we'll go fast, I promise. Briefly, the 10 things he lists. First, Jesus says he knows their works. Works generally refer to good deeds done for the sake of Jesus. To do good works, that means these people are full of generosity, kindness, practical deeds of service. These Ephesians, working hard for God. Second, Jesus knows their toil. Toil has a slightly different connotation from works. Toil refers to continuing to work when work has become hard, when work is a slog, when one one is weary and worn out. So these Ephesians, they're not just doing good works when energy is high and everyone's pumped up, but also when it's hard. At the end of long days and long weeks and long years, they continue to labor for Jesus. Third, Jesus knows their patient endurance. Kind of similar to toil. Patient endurance means they have a steadiness in the kingdom of God. In the face of opposition or difficulty of various kinds, these Ephesians are just kind of marching forward. Fourth, Jesus sees them not bearing with those who are evil. That's a kind of discernment. The, the, the Ephesians, they excel at figuring out people who call themselves Christians but in fact are doing evil. And they say, we're not going to put up with that. We're not going to put up with you. That doesn't mean that they, these Christians are only being friends with other Christians, just that they're, they're kind of good at helping people be honest. They're, they're, they're good at saying, if you are a Christian, live like a Christian. And if you don't want to live like a Christian, then okay, that just means you aren't one. Let's be honest wherever we're at. They don't bear with those who are evil. Let's put the next two together. Number five, Jesus sees them testing apostles. And number six, Jesus sees them discerning between false and true apostles. This is all at the end of verse two. So it's one thing to distinguish between regular Christians, you know, if they're acting like a Christian or if they aren't, but it's another thing to be vigilant against false teachers and false leaders in the church. So these Ephesians, not just on guard against um, false teaching, but they're wary of these apostles and teachers who, who had behavioral deficiencies, if someone came into their church and was maybe teaching good things, but they, their life didn't match up, uh, they, they were good at discerning that, kind of calling that out. Seventh, Jesus sees the Ephesians enduring patiently. Now, you're like, didn't we just do this one? <laughs> yeah, we did. He, G, uh, Jesus said, I know your patient endurance, and I know that you have endured patiently. He says it both ways around. Commenting a second time on basically the exact same thing underscores, your endurance has been remarkable. Beyond human willpower. You know, Ephesus, we know, had a large and influential cult and temple to Artemis. And perhaps the Ephesians had endured great opposition from, you know, local, more established religions. And whatever the reason, whatever the opposition was, we're not exactly sure, but they are twice commended for their patience and endurance. Number eight, Jesus sees them bearing up for his name's sake. That's in the middle of verse three. It's kind of a descriptor for how they endured. The glory didn't go to them. They didn't do it for their own name's sake. Like, look at us. Look how good we're doing. They are doing it for the sake of Jesus' name. Ninth, Jesus sees them not growing weary. Variations on a similar theme here. But then down in verse 6, Jesus sees them hating the work of the Nicolaitans. Now, this is kind of a mysterious group. We're going we're gonna to hit them again in a few weeks. One of the other churches is mentioned as dealing with, with, with these guys. Um, mainly what we learn here about them... <clears throat> 
is that Jesus also hates their work. So it's like, that, that's a pretty, a pretty serious charge if Jesus is really opposed to you. Um, but we can assume this is sort of a specific way or a specific incidence of Ephesians discerning true doctrine from false doctrine. And they say, hey, you Nicolaitans, you're not teaching a true gospel. You're possibly, they're, they're promoting sexual immorality. They're doing other stuff. So, you know, you're out. That's not Christian teaching. They are against the works of them just the way Jesus was. Ten commendations. Now, I think we can kind of sort these into two general categories because you're not going to remember all ten. So here are my two general categories. The Ephesians are commended for their good works and their careful theology. And really, in both of these things, they've persevered. Their good works and their careful theology. Despite opposition, despite reasons to be impatient, they're keeping false doctrine out, they're pressing forward in good work, they are working hard for God. Now, this is a pretty good report, right? If they came and described Resurrection Church this way, we're like, we're doing pretty well. Other churches, you're gonna, if you come back in future weeks, other churches, Laodicea, Sardis, it's, it's, it's not good. They don't, they don't get a whole lot of encouragement. It's like, eh, nothing's really going right here. You know, a lot of things are going wrong, but for the Ephesians, they've, they've done a lot of commendable things. But here's what I will say. The church at Ephesus feels a lot like a Reformed church. They're good at theology. They're very careful about what kind of teaching gets into the church, who we listen to. They're very steadfast. They're very patient. They hang on. They're very diligent in Christian service. When, when the doors of the church open, people are there to, to help do things. That sounds a lot like us. Sounds a lot like churches like us. But there's a great problem. And this is going to be, it's going to be really important because it gets at an issue about sin that, that's it's really important for us to talk about. How do we normally define sin? How do we normally define, you know, if someone, you know, a kid asked you, how do, how do we define sin? I think normally in churches like ours especially, we talk about sin in terms of rules. We've got 10 commandments and we've sort of got, not variations, but explanations of those commandments and we must keep them. And when we don't, that's sin. And look, that's true. That's, that's a big part of the story but it's not all of the story. Because we're about to discover in this passage a church that's very zealous for good deeds, very careful about its theology, and at the same time is on the verge of being de-churched by Jesus. He's like, I'm about to make you not a church. So what is it then? Well, Luke 15, there's a parable of the prodigal son. And in that parable, and when we read it often, we're worried about the prodigal, right? He's the one with the problems, isn't he? He dishonors his father. He asks for his inheritance. He runs away to a, a, a foreign land. He blows all the money on wild partying, prostitutes, everything else. And, and when churches often read that story, we're like, man, that prodigal, yikes. Is he gonna come back? He's broken so many rules. But do you know what happens in the parable of the prodigal son? Do you remember how it ends? There is a party with the father, and only one son is at the party. And it's not the rule breaker. It's not the prodigal who's run away and basically broken all of the Ten Commandments all at the same time. But the older son who broke no rules, who kept the commandments, turned out to be as spiritually lost as his immoral, selfish, rule-breaking, prodigal younger brother. 
Now, Tim Keller, when he wrote about this story, he he wrote this, and I want you to hear this because it relates to the Ephesian church, and I think it relates to us. He says, quote, when you question religious people about whether their relationship with God is okay, they normally respond with indignation. How can you say that? I'm there every day, every time the church door is open, they are offended by the suggestion that it's possible to rebel against the Father by staying home. The Ephesian church has done much right. There's a lot that's commendable, but there is one great thing wrong. So let's talk about that. A church on the edge. Verse 4. But. Ugh, that's not good. It's not an and. It's not an, uh, you know, kind of balance things out. It's a, it's a but. Which means all of these things may be counteracted by what I'm about to say. There are 10 things right about your church. You're zealous for good works. You've thrown out false apostles. You've endured against great opposition. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Now let's look at this sentence carefully so we don't mistake the meaning. First notice the verb. They've abandoned their first love. They have not drifted from it. Their first love has not moved away from them. For some reason, because of something they love, because of something they've done, they they have left their first love. They have abandoned it. Now, what does that mean? The love you had at first, the first love, I'll use those phrases interchangeably. What what does that mean? Does that mean their love for God? Or does it mean their love for one another? Is Jesus calling them out for a failure to fulfill the, the first and greatest commandment, to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or is he calling them out for a failure to fulfill the second greatest commandment, to love our neighbors as ourselves? How could they be doing good works? How could they be zealous about theology and not love God? Well, this expression here doesn't answer our question. What is the first love? But over and over in the New Testament, John, Peter, Paul, all the the writers, they all argue the same thing. You can't love God and hate your neighbor. You you, you can't. If you love God, like 1 John especially, just beats this drum over and over. If you love God, you will love your neighbor. If you hate your late neighbor, you can't say you love God. The rest of the New Testament, that gives us an answer to what the identity of the first love is. It's the love of both God and neighbor. God first and neighbor as ourselves. But still, what does John mean? What's the problem? What does it mean that they've abandoned the love they had at first? Well, here's the best I think I can explain it. The church at Ephesus, persistent, patient, orthodox, and at the same time, there was a hardness and a callousness and a sense of simply going through the motions. And the Ephesians seem to be, from what's written here, they seem to be elder brothers. They've never strayed too far from home. They really haven't broken a lot of rules. They haven't squandered their inheritance, but their hearts are steadily moving away from God. Now, how can you tell if your first love is slipping away? Are there warning signs on that path? Maybe you're wondering for yourself. Maybe you're wondering for our church. Can we know? It's usually not obviously, obvious immediately that you're headed the wrong way. It usually doesn't start with something big like, well, I cheated on my wife and embezzled thousands of dollars this weekend. But, but what we're asking is, is there like a Geiger counter for your heart where it begins to tick faster um, when, when things are getting a bit radioactive? I think so. I think there are some things we can watch out for, and to be clear, I'm not pulling these directly from this text. I'm kind of I'm kind of importing from other parts of the New Testament here. But I'll give you four things to watch for. 
The first is resentment towards God and others. A heart that is growing increasingly hard and calloused believes on some level it deserves something and is not getting it. Like the older brother and the prodigal son, the son resents the father. He says, you've never thrown me a party. You never gave me a goat to celebrate with my friends. The older brother resents the younger brother for what he gets. Second, anger. Anger is a, uh, is a sign that you're losing your first love. You know, anger is a moral emotion. At its best, when anger is at its best, it's insisting something has gone wrong and we need to right it. But at its worst, anger puts the self in the place of God and warns everyone else around, cross my will and face the consequences. See, anger seizes moral high ground and just battles anyone who tries to assault that territory. And those who live in a regular state of anger, feeling morally superior to others, if you live in a world filled with jerks and idiots, you drive everyone in your life away until you stand in sort of in a relational circle of scorched earth. And anger, if, you, if, you, if you're like, I'm just going to squash it down, I'm going to push it down, it's going to ferment into bitterness and shame and even some kinds of depression. If you feel like you are surrounded by fools everywhere you go, I think you ought to be careful. Because anger is an emotion of a person who, who's, who is losing their first love. Third one, disdain. A person who is losing their first love has a hard time feeling compassion for anyone who struggles. You look down on them, man, what's wrong with them? Why can't they get their act together? Anyone who is less strong, less capable, less self-controlled, less something, you just have no time for, it's disdain. And fourth, and maybe the one you may have thought of, joylessness. One of the main signals your love is slipping away is that obedience to God, that work in the church, feels joyless, it feels fear-based, and it feels empty. This often shows up in prayer. It's like, you may be diligent to pray. Maybe these Ephesians are like Wednesday night prayer meeting, you know, they're all there or whatever. Was there intimacy? Was there delight? Was there any sense of closeness? I think the fourth, these four things, resentment, anger, disdain, and joylessness, the key to them all is they all happen under the surface. It's really hard to tell from the outside that something is going wrong kind of under the hood. And uh, I'm pretty sure this is why we see some religious people blow up in such spectacular ways. Because we've been, they've been headed in the wrong direction for years. But it was just really hard to tell. <clears throat> but if you look at verse 5, Jesus gets very serious. He says, if things don't change, if you don't repent, I'll come and take your lampstand away. And as I mentioned at the beginning, lampstand is a word for church. He will de-church them. It, it can feel like uh, anger, disdain, resentment, joylessness. They, it, they, these things can feel minor. It can feel like, how can God be mad at me for this? Look at all the things we're doing well. And Jesus says, you are on the edge of disaster and you just don't see it. Ten things right, one thing's wrong, but like a, one thing wrong, but like a broken rudder. If that thing goes, you are going to wreck yourself on the rocks. And I worry for myself, I worry for us, I worry for churches like ours. Because it seems, for whatever reason, the kind of theological system or denomination or whatever, that the thing that we are part of, we just fit this profile. 
Zealous for doctrine, eager for good works, showing up when the church door opens to help, working for years in the house of the Father, but underneath, our hearts could be growing cold and callous. It's a dangerous place to be. Part three, the way back. Here's a question. Why does Jesus warn the Ephesian church in such a stark way and stern way? Well, I'll give you a clue. It's not because he wants to rub their nose in it. Like, man, you Ephesians think you're so good. You know, take this. Uh, That's not what he's doing. He says he wants them to remember where they've fallen, to repent, to turn from what they're doing, and to do something important. Jesus wants them back. That's what he wants. He He wants them to change. Now, here's something very important for some of us. When we hear the word repent, we immediately try to start thinking of a rule we've broken. It's like, I got to find something to repent of. I got to concentrate really carefully. And then I'm going to find a rule I've broken and then I can confess that. But remember, the problem for churches like Ephesus is not that they've broken so many rules. The problem is they've kept all the rules with hard hearts. The problem is not, oh, you've been with Artemis in her temple. No, no, the problem was you are so proud and self-righteous about staying out of the temple. The problem for them is not, oh, they've, they've slept around. The problem is that you disdain those who do. The problem is not that you're failing to pray. It's that you're so angry when you pray because God isn't giving you what you think you want. You got like church sins. See, what do you do when you have a hard heart that is losing its first love? If all you are repenting of is rules that you've broken, it's not going to go deep enough. That's not what Ephesus needed. What you also need to repent of is all the terrible things you ever did anything right. This is how Tim Keller says it again. He says this, when you realize the antidote to being bad is not simply being good, that's when you're on the brink of understanding the gospel. Jesus doesn't want the Ephesians to redouble their efforts. (laughs) Try really, really hard to keep your doctrine pure. Work really, really hard. He wants their love. He wants them. Think of it this way. Think of a neglected wife whose husband does all the right things, you know, around the house and in their relationship, but has none of the heart behind it. He hugs, but it's kind of stiff. It's forced only when asked. He does household chores, but he's really grumpy about them. He's taking out the garbage, but mad about it. He's like a terrific roommate, but the worst kind of spouse. Now, what would such a wife want? Not more chores. That's not what she wants. She wants to be loved. She wants to be cherished. She wants his heart. And I bet if you could ask a woman in this situation, she'd trade all the chores for love. Stop doing all of them. Just come back. This is what Jesus is saying. Remember Christ. The way back to a heart that belongs to Christ is to remember him. So if this morning you're feeling the weight of your sin, remember, he died for that. He died for angry people. He died for prideful and self-righteous people and bitter people. And he died for this Ephesians church, which did everything right for all the wrong reasons. So remember him 
And yet he says, yes, do the works you did at first. Of course, don't, don't stop doing that. Believing in Jesus doesn't remove the responsibility to do good works, but you don't do them to get things from God. You do them in joy. Look, we don't need to become a different kind of church. I think after today, we can still be Presbyterians. It's fine. We, we, we can still care about Orthodox theology. We can still be zealous for good works, but what we need is orthodoxy leavened with love. We need endurance tempered with joy, not just dourness. We need good works infused with kindness. We need the fruit of Christ's spirit to infect everything we already do. But to get there, we can't just look at the surface sins. We have to get underneath. Now, finally, we'll close with this. What do the prideful and the resentful and the disdainful and the bitter get when they repent and turn from their sin and remember Christ? Look at the last line. Jesus holds this out to these Ephesians, this church on the edge of disaster. He says, he invites them, come and eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Now, we, there's like a whole thing we could do on this, but where else do we read of a tree of life in the paradise of God? That's Eden language. That's Adam and Eve language. Jesus says the one who, who turned from their sin, uh, remember, see their sin and turn from it and trust in Christ will be welcomed into eternal paradise. You want to walk with God in the garden. You, you're invited to, but you have to be able to hear. To hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. To ask God for maybe a pick and a shovel that he's going to dig through the, like, the granite in the sides of our heads so that we can hear his voice and respond. This is the mystery of faith, that Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ will come again. I beg you, have ears to hear. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and are, and are grateful that you love the church at Ephesus and indeed all of the churches, including us, enough to warn us of danger. That for some of us, we are doing a million things right with all the wrong, for all the wrong reasons. Speak to our hearts. Show us our sin. Show us where we're rebelling against you by staying home. Please help us to see. And when we see, to, to repent and to remember you. In Christ's name, we ask this. Amen.